0: I don't know about you, but my memory is not real good, especially when it comes to events and conversations. Now, there's some things that I remember really well, but things that happened or things that were said, not so great. It's not uncommon for me, for someone to uh, tell me a story they think that I remember about something that happened or something that was said, and I was there, maybe even I was the person, they're remembering, you know, you did this, you did that, but I either don't remember it at all, or only have the vaguest recollection of even being there, or that thing even happening. (laughs) Thank you for that, amen. Sarah, on the other hand, has a fantastic memory, and she can remember things that I told her about things that happened to me that I no longer remember, and she wasn't even there, but she remembers them because I told them to her, but I have now forgotten. But even she would have a hard time remembering word for word a lengthy conversation that happened 10 or 20 years ago. Even the person with the best memory in the room would surely be a little fuzzy on the details even of significant events that happened 30 years ago. So how... Did someone like the Apostle John manage to write detailed accounts, not only of things that Jesus did, but also things that he said, whole parables he told, specific ways he responded to specific people throughout his ministry, writing them down probably decades after those events happened? There's a good answer to that question. There's probably more than one answer, but one of the answers we find in the Gospel of John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're finishing up John 14. We're going to start in verse 25 and work our way through to the end of the chapter in verse 31. But if you have a Bible, not all of us do, mine's not this way, but if you have a Bible where the letters of Jesus are in red, I want you to just look at the page. If you're there in John 14, just look at the page in John 14 and John 15, and John 16, and John 17, if the words of Jesus are in red in your Bible, those chapters are almost completely red. How did John remember all of that? Can we trust him to recount those things that Jesus said with accuracy and faithfulness? We absolutely can, and John's going to tell us why as he records the words of Jesus for us in verses 25 to 31. So let me read those for us. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. So remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in the final hours before his betrayal by Judas, where he will be taken to the rulers and authorities, and then taken before Pilate, and then ultimately taken to the cross. And he's spending these final hours with his disciples, instructing them and specifically preparing them for his departure. And one of the things he's doing in this chapter is he's telling them about the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in them, and be at work in them after Jesus leaves. And of course, we see this in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers the apostles to preach the gospel and to take the good news about Christ all throughout the world. But here, Jesus is preparing them for that, teaching them about that, telling them what that's going to be like. So, in verse 25 and 26, he's alluding to that in verse 25 when he says, I'm telling you these things while I'm still with you. Because he's not going to be with them much longer. And he's been telling them that. And in verse 26 he says, but the Helper, remember he said earlier, the Father's going to send you another Helper, like Jesus has been their Helper, now the Spirit will be their Helper. He's going to send you another Helper, and he says, "The, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here's what he's going to do. He says, he will teach you All things. So the Holy Spirit has a teaching role among the apostles. He's going to instruct them. He's going to tell them things they don't yet know. So even though Jesus has been with the disciples for three years at this point, and he's done a lot of teaching, a lot of instructing, and in these final hours, again, as you can see by looking at these few pages, he's pouring into them all that he can in these last moments he has with them. And yet, Jesus tells them that he hasn't taught them everything he would like for them to know. Later, in chapter 16, verse 12 and 13, he says to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, there's more stuff for me to tell you, but it would be too much for me to put it on you now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He will teach you. He will tell you these things. He's going to let you know about things that are going to happen in the future. Things that are still yet to come. So the Holy Spirit is a teacher among God's people. He helps us to understand. He instructs us. He teaches us. But not only is he a teacher, he's also a reminder. At the end of verse 26, he says uh, that he will also bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So if you look at these pages in the Bible, you look at the stories about Jesus, you look at the teaching of Jesus, and you think, it would take a supernatural feat of memory for someone to remember all that. You're exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. The Holy Spirit enables John and Matthew and the others to remember the things that Jesus said, remember the things that Jesus did, so that when they wrote those things down, they were doing so not with the fuzzy, incomplete memories that you and I tend to have, but with a memory aided by the Holy Spirit himself so that what they wrote was accurate and faithful and trustworthy. What they were doing, in other words, is what Peter says about uh, all prophecy in Scripture, but it applies to the Gospels as well, when he says at the end of 2 Peter 1, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When John wrote his gospel, when Matthew wrote his gospel, when Mark wrote his gospel, when Luke wrote his gospel, yes, they were men writing, but they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit in some mysterious way the Spirit was at work in them, reminding them of things they had heard or seen helping them put those things together in a way that was faithful and truthful and accurate so that we could depend upon these words not at the same level we depend upon the words of trustworthy men but so that we could depend upon them at the level we could trust only God because the words ultimately come to us from Him, through those men. If we can trust the Spirit, then we can trust the Scripture. I don't trust my memory much, but I trust the Holy Spirit. And so I trust the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are not just the memories of men. They are the work of the Spirit of God. Now when Jesus, after Jesus says that, He tells them in verse 27, uh, he begins to tell them some things that he hasn't told them yet about his departure that they also need to know. For example, in verse 27, he talks about giving them his peace. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What is he talking about when he says he gives them his peace? Well, first of all, that word, has a richer, fuller meaning than we usually uh, stop to think about when we hear it, especially in the Scripture. When Jesus talks about giving his disciples his peace, I think at one level he has to be thinking about the peace that he is securing for us with God and with one another through his death. Jesus' departure is not just Jesus saying goodbye. His departure is him laying down his life on the cross. And then rising from the dead and then ascending back into heaven to sit at at the Father's right hand. And so if he gives them his peace when he departs, I think he has to be thinking at least in part about the way his departure secures peace for us. So, for example, Paul says in Ephesians 2 about Jesus that he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Talking about Jews and Gentiles who were divided before. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace peace between us, right? And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And he says he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So we have peace with God through the death of Christ and we have peace with one another as Christians through the death of Christ because we have been united together in Christ again through his death and resurrection. I think that's got to be in his mind at one level. Another thing I think that... Jesus likely has in mind here as he tells them about giving them his peace, is that when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, remember when, so the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us, and though that is an invisible reality at some level, I can't, I can't look at you and see, you know, is the Holy Spirit in there somewhere? Like, you can't see that. But the Holy Spirit makes his presence known through what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And near the top of that list is peace, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So when Jesus leaves and then gives us the Spirit, He also gives us His peace. Because with the Spirit in our life comes God's peace in our life. But I also think he's talking about what we normally think about when we think about peace, which is just relief from our anxieties, our troubles, our worries. Because Jesus tells them here, like, he doesn't want them to be troubled. Right in the middle of verse 27, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be anxious, upset, distressed. I'm, even though I'm leaving, I'm leaving with you my peace to comfort you to encourage you. Uh, Like Paul talks about in Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think Jesus is saying also, I'm going to leave with you the kind of peace that gives you more peace than people can understand given the circumstances that you're in. How can you be at peace in this moment, in this trial, in this absence, in this distressing situation? Well, because Christ has given me His peace by His Spirit. He's giving us His peace. He also says that He is going to the Father in verse 28. He says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. So when Jesus told his disciples he was leaving, they were not happy about that. They were not excited about that. They were troubled and distressed. They did not want that to happen. Peter wanted to go with Jesus wherever he was going. Jesus said, not yet. You can't right now. Later you will. But he says to them, you should have, not only do I not want you to be troubled about this, you should have rejoiced. With me, because this is good news for me. Jesus says, "I'm going to go back into the presence of the Father. That's where I want to be. That's where it's better to be. So you should have rejoiced with me when I told you that that's where I was going." We uh, use this language sometimes, even when we talk about a a brother or sister in Christ who has uh, passed away and gone to be with the Lord. Right? We're grieving. We're sad. We are mourning the loss of that person, but we might even say, but I'm happy for them. I'm glad they're in a better place. I'm glad that they are now in the presence of Jesus. Right? Jesus is, is, is in a sense saying, where is that part of the equation for you guys? Right? Where, where is your joy for me that I'm going back into the Father's presence. You should be happy for me about that. After all, that's what we're all supposed to be desiring and all supposed to be after. We want to be in the presence of God. And that desire is traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? We were created to live in God's presence. We want to get back there, and the Bible tells us that's where God is taking us. He has sent His Son not only so that our sins can be forgiven, but also so that we could have fellowship with God forever. So that when Jesus returns and there's the new heavens and the new earth, we'll get to dwell in God's presence and he will be our God and we will be his people. And the Bible says we'll even see his face. That's what we all ought to be longing for. And so Jesus says, why aren't you happy for me about that? But then he says something that can be a little puzzling until we learn how to kind of uh, explain it and understand what he's after. He says there at the end of verse 28 when he says, you know, you should have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. He says, for the Father is greater than I. Now, if you've been following what John has been saying throughout his gospel, that's, that's probably going to make you scratch your head a little bit. Because Jesus has just said... That the Father is greater than Him. But John has been telling us, I mean, from the first line of the book, that Jesus is equal with God. At the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not was like God, not was almost God, was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus, right? And John literally uses the words in John 5.18, equal with God, when he says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Remember, they were trying to kill Jesus. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So John says, the reason why people were trying to kill Jesus is because Jesus was saying, he's the father, my father. I'm equal to him. I can do what he does. Right? My, he said, my father is working until now, and I'm working. So God works on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. So why is Jesus now saying, the father is greater than I? Which one is it? Is it either or? Is that a contradiction? Is there some way that both of them can be true? What do we do with that? Well, one of the most helpful things that I have learned for understanding the Bible in the last few years is a principle that uh, Augustine writes about in his book on the Trinity. And he uses Philippians chapter 2. And and before you think, oh my goodness, Augustine in a book on the Trinity, I'm going to be so lost. I can feel it coming. Right? Okay, here's the thing. Augustine is a brilliant teacher, and brilliant teachers are able to take really complex ideas and make them where all the rest of us can understand, right? So here's what Augustine does. He takes Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says about Jesus that he was in the form of God, But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He takes that passage and he says, Okay, this is our key for understanding everything the Bible says about Jesus as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. So Jesus was in the form of God, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He became a man. So, here's what Augustine says. He says, Scripture says both. That the Son is equal to the Father, and that the Father is greater than the Son. That's what we're seeing in John, right? And Augustine says, they're both in there. Okay, so what do we do with them? He says, the one is to be understood in virtue of the form of God, the other in virtue of the form of a servant. In other words, when Jesus claims to be equal with God, he's talking about who he is as the Son of God, the Word who's always existed, who was there in the beginning, who was with God and who was God. But when he says, the Father is greater than I, he's talking about himself as the Word who took on flesh, who humbled himself, who took on the form of a servant in that position, in that form, there is a sense in which the Father is greater than Him. Because He's humbled Himself. He's lowered Himself. But at the core of who Jesus is, as it were, as He's still God, He's still the eternal Word, He is equal to the Father. So, here's another way Augustine says it. He says, the Son of God is the Father's equal by nature. But by condition... Right By his taking on flesh. By condition, his inferior. In the form of a servant which he took, he is the father's inferior. In the form of God in which he existed, even before he took this other, he is the father's equal. It's like what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus Is Jesus lower than the angels? No, I mean, Hebrews chapter 1 is all about telling us that Jesus is greater than the angels. But he's made himself for a little while lower than the angels by becoming man, because we're lower than the angels. And so Jesus becoming as one of us, he puts himself lower than the angels for a time. But it doesn't change the fact that as God, he's greater than the angels, he's equal to the Father. So that's how we that that's how we understand what Jesus is saying there. He's not going back on what he's been saying before. Actually, no, I'm not equal with God. I'm actually less than God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the Father is greater than I in the condition I am in currently, but I, now I get to go back into his presence. That's what I'm longing for. You should have rejoiced with me about that. And here's why I'm telling you all this, Jesus says, verse 29. Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Much of what Jesus is doing with his disciples, in fact, much of what the Bible does for us, Old Testament and New, is tell us things that are going to happen, that God is going to do, before they happen, so that when they happen, they don't take us by surprise, they don't make us think that God is somehow out of control, uh, that the world is outside of his control, but instead we know, this is exactly what God said was going to happen, which means God is in control of this situation, which means even if I don't like it, or didn't expect it, I know I don't have to be afraid, that somehow things have all gone wrong. So like in the Old Testament, for example, when the Babylonians came and captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which was God's dwelling place, and burned it with fire. If God had not told His people ahead of time that that would happen if they did not turn from their sin, if they did not turn back to Him, that that's what would happen if they worshipped idols instead of worshipping God. If God had not told them that, the conclusion they most likely would have drawn was, that nation's God is more powerful than our God because they just burned our God's house down. But instead, God shows Ezekiel, I'm leaving this house because you guys have defiled it. And he tells the prophets, I'm going to send a nation in here to destroy this house because that's what you have brought on yourself by being unfaithful to me. So that when it happens, it doesn't look like a defeat for God, we recognize it instead as a judgment on his people. In the same way, Jesus says, I want you to know what's about to happen so that when it happens, you won't think that darkness has the upper hand, that Satan's actually in control, that I was somehow caught by surprise by Judas's betrayal. I want you to know what is about to happen so that when, you happen, when it happens, it doesn't shake your faith, but strengthens it. That's why I'm telling you this. So, he wants them to believe, and he tells them one more thing that's going to happen. He says, I'll no longer talk much with you, verse 30, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me. Now, who is this ruler of the world that he's talking about? It's clearly not God, right, because he talks about God Separately, as the Father. Who is the ruler of this world? Well, there's a sense in which the Bible talks about Satan as the ruler of this world. Not that he's like in charge of the whole universe, that God's in charge of the whole universe. But the world, in the sense that the world is in rebellion against God. We talk about like the world and the flesh and the devil, right? In the sense that the world is in rebellion against God, Satan is the ruler of that world. He is the leader of those who are running away from God, shaking their fist at God, ignoring God, doing everything but listening to and obeying God. He's the ruler of the world in that sense. And Jesus says, He's coming. We know He's coming. He's coming in the person of Judas. right? Because we, And we know that because back in chapter 13, when Jesus was sitting with His disciples and talking about His coming betrayal, And John leaned over and said, who are you talking about? Who is going to do this? Who's going to betray you? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, it says, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So when Judas comes, Satan is coming. Because Satan has entered into Judas and Judas is working with Satan as it were in this betrayal of Christ. Jesus knows this is coming. He's telling them in advance. But He also says, I want you to be clear on this. He has no claim on me. I do not owe Satan anything. He has no authority over me. I am not going to the cross against my will. He is not about to outmaneuver me. He is not about to overpower me. What I'm doing, he says in verse 31, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Remember, Jesus said back in chapter 10, he said about, about his life and when he would die, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he says, that's what's going on here. Satan is coming, yes. But he has no power over me. He has no authority over me. I am simply doing what the Father sent me here to do. I am going to allow him to do what he is about to do, but I will be in charge every step of the way. He tells this to Pilate later too. You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Jesus is going willingly to lay down his life, not only to show his love for us as he dies for us in our place on the cross, but also to show his love for the Father as he obeys the Father even to the point of death. That's why he came That's what he did, and love is why he did it. All of this we are told so that we will believe. Toward the end of the book, John even says it this way. In John 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the invitation of the gospel, right? If you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ, you receive eternal life, your sins are forgiven because Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrew says, all who trust in him. Thankfully, God is not surprised by the weakness of our memories or our need for frequent reminders. Right? That's why he sent the Spirit to help the apostles remember. That's also why He's given us the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He's given this to us to remind us about His death, His resurrection, and the salvation that He accomplished for us. Let's pray.